0: Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us reveal tote bags like our t-shirts they're simple and elegant dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type so here's what you got to do text the word review to 474747 and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last again text the word review to 474747 you can text stop at any time and standard rates apply and when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Letson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This is Chapter 4 of American Rehab, Cowboy Conman. I'm here with Reveal's Shoshana Walter. Show has been investigating drug rehabs that send people to work and keep all their pay.
1: And a few years ago,
2: I came across Senecor, a rehab with locations in Texas and Louisiana. It's one of the bigger work-based rehabs I found.
0: Senecor is a spinoff of Sinanon, that culty, ingenious, and abusive organization that died in our last chapter.
2: A spin-off that's unique in that it has kept going, mostly the same, for decades. The same work therapy I heard about from Tim Rowe back in Chapter 1.
3: I was told that he would help me find a job. I wasn't told that I'd be just thrown into a van and hauled off to some job and, I, and be told that I, I like it or not. I have to do it. Wow, Tim. Um, they, they, all they do is just work the dog shit out of you and, and, and you don't get paid.
2: The same kind of weird
3: punishments. The verbal chair. That's where I would sit with my hands on my knees and I'd have to stare straight ahead.
0: Now, some of it seems to echo Synanon, but some of it is a mystery.
2: And the question I had was, who launched Senecor? Who was the person that started something so strong it could last for more than 50 years? On the Senecor website, it says the first Senecor chapter was founded inside a state penitentiary in Cannon City, Colorado. The description is short. Inmates gathered together to discuss their issues with drugs and alcohol. There's no mention of a founder.
0: So whoever organized this first Senecor chapter is written out of the organization's history.
2: I did learn the founder's name. James Lucas Austin. He went by Luke. Once I found out that Luke ran Senecor for a decade, it seemed even stranger that his name had been left out. It was Luke's vision that would end up sending thousands and thousands of people to work when what
0: they really needed was addiction treatment. Our colleague, Laura Starcheski, loves digging way back into the past, following the trail left behind by old documents and photographs. So we sent Laura to find out who Luke Austin was. We begin in a Colorado prison in 1967, the birthplace of Senecor.
1: When he got the idea to start Senecor, Luke Austin was a wayward country singer stuck doing time in the state penitentiary. In Better Days, he'd toured with Johnny Cash and played at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. That's what I picked up by reading grainy newspaper accounts about Senecor, anyway, which was the first thing I tried. Luke told the papers his idea was to start his own Synanon chapter, but the warden said no. Synanon already had a bit of a bad name, so Luke changed it to a word he made up. Sennacore. For the center of the core of the person, that innermost part of us all, the soul, the part that Luke and Senecor could fix.
4: It's getting harder and harder to raise money because of the economic problems that we're having in the country. And being a former country western artist myself, I decided to go into this and uh, try and raise some money for Senecor. This is what we're doing.
1: This is the one recording I've been able to find of Luke talking about Senecor. It's from a Houston local TV broadcast, a little spot about the Senecore band from 1974. In one shot, there's this huge tour bus with Luke Austin and Country Kingdom USA painted on the side. In a room inside a Senecor building, a few band members fiddle with their instruments. Luke talks to the camera with a cigarette burning down in one beefy hand. He's wearing a silver chain around his wrist and a chunky turquoise ring. He's a big man with even bigger lapels on his brown suit jacket. He's got beady blue eyes, red hair slicked back, and fluffy sideburns.
4: We have an album out now. We have a single that's being released uh, today. And uh, we're playing out at Dance Town, uh, USA, on Sunday, December 8th. The tickets are $2.50 apiece, and we hope everybody comes, because they're going to have a good show.
1: And yes, I found the record. This song is called Louisiana Swamp Man. Luke wrote the song, and that's him singing it.
5: When I was to 19 years, I chanced to go to town, got in a fight with a gator man,
6: Lord, I brought him down.
1: The lyrics tell the story of a young outlaw, desperate to escape the swamp, but destined to die there, a wanted man. The next thing I did was request Luke's prison records. The Colorado State Archive sent me two pages scanned from an old logbook. Luke had been convicted of assault with a deadly weapon in 1966. That's why he was in prison, serving a one- to two-year sentence. The logbook said Luke was born in October 1932 in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, so not a Louisiana swamp man. His occupation was listed as musician. And the more I read, the more versions of Luke Austin I would find. He told one newspaper he got the idea for Senecor because he had heard about Sinanon. He told another one, actually, he was a member of Sinanon for a little bit. Then he said he lived at Sinanon for three and a half years out in California. In one account, he said he had a drug problem, that he'd been using pills in prison. In the next, he claimed he'd never actually used drugs himself. I spent months digging into Luke's backstory. I read more old newspapers, I requested records from other states, I called up early Senecor members, I even put in a records request with the FBI to try to get beyond the legend of Luke Austin and discover the true origin story. Here's what I found. Luke Austin was actually born in Keene, New Hampshire. So he was a New Englander, not a Southerner. Luke was born on October seventh, 1931. I mention the day because in some of the records I found, he tweaked the day or the year. His real name was James Sanborn Thompson Jr. So Luke's birthday was a fake. His hometown was a lie. His name was an alias. Next, his criminal record. I got prison records from Colorado, Nevada, and Massachusetts. Luke started serving time when he was 18 years old. He was sent to a military prison camp for stealing cigarettes and beer when he was a private in the Air Force. He was dishonorably discharged. He was arrested eight times by the time he was 21, mostly for drunkenness over and over and stealing a truck once. And he was pretty much continuously in prison for the next 20 years. As I pieced together charge after charge, crime after crime, prison after prison, I saw a pattern. First, Luke was always begging for a guitar in letters he wrote to prison officials. I had an actor read a few excerpts.
7: August 2nd, 1952. Deputy Superintendent, Mr. J.J. Dacey, Norfolk, Massachusetts. Dear sir, I know you may get angry at me, but if you understood how I feel, then I know you'd see your way clear to let me have the one thing that is almost a part of me, my guitar. I've prayed night after night for the Lord to let you see your way clear to let me have it. I am a good guitarist. I am not a beginner. Please, do this one thing for me. April 5th, 1962. Captain Orville Jackson, Senior Captain. Sir. I thought perhaps I might be able to explain a few things in writing better than talking with you. I believe you know and understand how much I want to be able to play guitar again, and how much it means to me. The fact that because I've been in trouble so much is the reason I never became a big success. All in all, I've made a mess of my life, completely.
1: The second thing I noticed in the records? Work. At state and federal prisons, inmates like Luke had been made to work for decades. Unpaid prison labor is a long-standing American practice. And after the Civil War, when slavery was abolished, the federal government made one exception. Work as a punishment for people convicted of a crime. Across the South, states exploited the loophole to force recently freed Black Americans right back into involuntary servitude, effectively extending slavery. Inmates were forced to farm on plantations. They were leased out to private companies to work on railroads and in mines. The government later tried to sell prison labor as a reform effort, as you can hear in this film from 1935.
5: Hard, honest work is usually the most potent force in the reformation and rehabilitation of the prisoner. He must learn a respectable trade or vocation and be taught to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow.
1: While he was an inmate, Luke worked in a prison kitchen. He worked in a prison concrete plant. He worked in a prison mill, in a boiler room, on a farm.
5: City boys who wish to learn trades get their lessons on actual construction. To teach the prisoner real habits of industry so he will be able to keep pace with his fellow men when he leaves prison, he must have a hand in the production of useful articles and commodities.
1: Sometime around the late 1950s, Luke went to a federal penitentiary in Virginia called Lorton. Lorton was America's iconic workhouse prison. Teddy Roosevelt set it up in 1910, designed as an example to show that hard work could reform men who stole, beat their wives, or were addicted to alcohol and drugs. And while Luke was there, they would have had a farm, a dairy, a foundry. They would have been teaching prisoners how to become electricians and plumbers. They had brick kilns where the prisoners made the bricks and built the buildings that they themselves would be imprisoned in. I started to think that if there was any place that gave Luke the idea to make Senecor participants work, to teach them that hard work is the key to changing yourself, it could have been Lorton. Luke could get violent when he was angry, inside prison and when he was out. But he didn't seriously hurt anyone until the summer of 1961. One night in Las Vegas, after drinking two quarts of gin with some friends and his girlfriend, Luke thought he saw one of the friends embracing her. According to prison records, he stabbed his girlfriend once in the shoulder, and then he stabbed the man to death. Luke got a sentence of 10 years to life in the Nevada State Prison.
6: Floated up from my unconscious mind to my conscious mind. It was about Luke. It was in that prison
1: where Luke met our old friend Candy Latson, one of the original members of Sinanon.
6: God damn, I ain't thought about that boy in years. And, 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 and I could see him with cowboy boots on, jeans, red hair, guitar.
1: Candy had been invited into the Nevada State Prison to start a Sinanon chapter for inmates.
5: The first time Candy Latson saw the inside of a jail, he was 19 years old and hopelessly addicted to narcotics. Now 29, Latson hasn't taken so much as aspirin since joining Synanon six years ago. He is now a regular and welcome visitor at Nevada State Prison. He carries with him into these cell blocks an idea that crime, like dope, is an addiction, and that both are an addiction to stupidity.
1: CBS News's Charles Kuralt covered this new idea, that Synanon could help people who use drugs and people who committed crimes. Kuralt interviewed Candy on his show The 20th Century.
5: Well, these things that you discuss in the prison aren't really the kind of things inmates usually talk about, are they? How do you get through to them? How do you make them talk about things they never talked about before? Most guys in prison, they kind of got an image, you know? Uh, You know, I've done time a couple of times, and uh, I've been arrested about 30 times. And uh, they know me, and I know them. The same little, you know, walk and talk that they do in jail was the same walk and talk I did while I was in jail. And um, we relate more as human beings. Like I don't have no.
1: That's where Luke became a member of Sinanon, not out in California, but inside a prison.
7: Uh, would you please tell me what is uh, the Sinanon game?
1: It was Candy who taught Luke how to play the game. That group therapy born at Synanon.
6: And I tell it to you like this: At Synanon, they say you are as sick as your secrets. So you're trying to pop that secret it's like a ball. You're trying to pop that poison out of there. Drain some of it out.
1: With Candy as his teacher. Luke soaked in all the behavior modification techniques that Synanon used. And inside that prison, just as he was supposed to be using the rules and tools of Synanon, working to confront his past, his drinking, the murder he'd committed, Luke started to weave a new persona. He claimed he'd been friends with Elvis Presley, and in 1961, he wrote a letter to a gossip magazine called Screen Stars, asking for help from his old friend Elvis. This time he explained he was a musician from Tennessee. He said he'd met Elvis in Memphis.
7: Luke wrote, I've had to go through hurt, longing, disappointments, tragedy, and finally prison to really be free. I've found something, more than a new way of life. It's something greater that I can't even explain. I know that with God's help, I've been molded into a man with something worthwhile in life to really strive for. I'm going to come out of here and make the long climb back. In
1: 1964, just three years into his possible life sentence for stabbing a man to death, Luke was released from prison. But he didn't make the long climb back just yet.
0: That's Reveal's Laura Starcheski. Laura continues to follow Luke's path to Senecor. Next stop, the country music bars of Denver, where he meets Pauline, a woman who's about to see his dark side.
3: I honestly had an out-of-body experience because I was up above and looking back. I don't know how this happened, but it's
0: the truth. That's coming up next on American Rehab from Reveal.
8: Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear, it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Luke Austin was a man known for lying, stealing, and killing. Yet, he's about to create what would become a respected rehab network, Senecor. Reveal's Laura Starcheski picks up Luke's story in Colorado.
1: In one of his prison records, I saw that Luke had written down his contact as someone named Pauline Funstein in Denver. The logbook said she was his girlfriend. So I started looking for Pauline. I tried a few different phone numbers, but none of them worked. I sent a snail mail letter to an address in Denver, and after a lot of back and forth, I finally got Pauline Funstein on the phone. She's 81 years old now and she met Luke around 1965. How did you even meet Luke Austin?
3: Oh, okay. I met him out on West Colfax at Ricky's. And he had recently, I guess, got out of jail. I'm not sure. That's what I was told later. But anyway, we met out there. He was very nice person. He has great personality. And we just hit it off pretty good, and we went together for a while.
1: I asked Pauline what she looked like in 1965. She said she wore miniskirts and a bow in her red hair. She was quote one of the sexy girls out there, having a good time. I'm just wondering if there's any anything else you can tell me about, like what he looked like, or like did he like
3: sandy hair? Okay. He was about six three, four maybe and he weighed 280 but he was never he wasn't fat he was just a big guy mm. you know real and he was solid cuz i know i danced with him you know he wasn't a flabby man and i know he was in good shape and he sang good and he had a guitar was he like a
1: friendly guy with a smile or was he more like reserved
3: oh no he was he smiled he had a beautiful smile yeah He'd show his teeth. And he had a a twinkle in his eye. He always looked like he was happy. And he got to know my kids. I had two children at the time, a boy and a girl. Well, I still have them. Just a few
1: months into their relationship, maybe six, Pauline isn't sure, Luke makes a sweeping gesture.
3: He one day decided to get engaged and gave me a beautiful, beautiful diamond ring. Gorgeous,
1: And they decide to move in together, so Luke brings some of his stuff over in boxes.
3: One night there was a bunch of papers and stuff sitting there and stuff and little trinkets, and I started going through them, and then I found this article that said he went to prison for killing a man over his wife or girlfriend. I can't remember what she was, but he had attacked... This man had attacked his girlfriend, and when Luke got to him, he just beat him to a pulp.
1: This was the guy Luke stabbed to death in Las Vegas. The man hadn't actually attacked Luke's girlfriend, according to his prison record. He just embraced her. But details aside...
3: It scared me. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to give you your ring back, and I'm not going to be engaged, but we'll be together but I have to get to know you a lot better. I've got two children. Long story short, he just grabbed me under my chin. He's a huge man. And he just picked me up under my chin, and he said, let's get this straight. If I can't have you, no one will. And he set me back down and walked out. And I went, whoa. Now, that scared me.
1: She says her jaw hurt for a month after that. Later that day, Pauline ran into a friend who told her that Luke was out looking for her. And he had a gun with
3: him. And I thought, where in the hell did he get a gun? That's what everybody else wanted to know. Where did he get the gun? And I said, well, what kind was it? And they said, a small one. Well, I had a twenty-two short. Gun that was way, way up in the back of my closet. In fact, I'd forgotten about it. It was so far back. And how he found it, I'll never know, but he did. The
1: next morning, Pauline went over to her friend Bonnie's house and...
3: Right through the front door came Luke into her house. He didn't knock nothing. He just opened the screen door, almost tore it off the end. And he came in the kitchen and he grabbed me. And I can't remember what all he said to me. It wasn't good. I know that. He scared me to death. And he threw me on the floor, and he put the gun in my face. You're and kidding.
1: He, this is oh, terrible. Yeah. This was not what I was expecting you to,
3: to, to tell well, me. Well, this is the truth. I still got witnesses. And uh, I pulled myself up into, like, a sitting position and he said, look at me, and I said, no. He said, look at me, or I'll shoot you, and I put my head down between my knees, and he shot me in the back of the head. What? And Bonnie screamed at him something, and he took off out the front door. I came, I I honestly had an out-of-body experience, because I was up above and looking down. I don't know how this happened, but it's the truth. And when I told Bonnie what I heard, she said, you couldn't have heard it because you were on the floor, gone.
1: This is the assault with the deadly weapon charge. When Pauline told me this part, I was like, how are you calling me? How are you 81. Pauline says the gun Luke fired was the one she had in the back of her closet. It had been there for so long, maybe it didn't work correctly, or maybe the bullets were old. Whatever the reason, the bullet didn't go through her skull. She was bleeding a lot, but she was more or less okay. Pauline escaped with some nerve damage and a bad concussion.
3: I went home, and as all I can remember is every time I went, tried to close my eyes and go to sleep, I'd come up and I could see that gun in my face. I never saw him again, but that gun was in my face every time I tried to sleep for years.
1: After Luke was convicted, he got a two-year sentence. He wrote her letters from prison. He wrote a poem for her daughter. He asked Pauline to buy him a Gibson Dove guitar, which would have been really expensive at the time. one day the warden called her and said I'm looking for a reference for Luke Austin like a positive character reference and Pauline said why are you calling me I'm the one he shot
3: but he did sing beautiful and he played a nice guitar but then he was stupid in other fields I guess to do what he did he gave up a lot of his life for going after people because he's mad
1: and it wouldn't be the last time
0: That's Reveal's Laura Starcheski. When we come back, Luke Austin goes legit. I stayed in Center for 11 years. 11 years.
4: I stayed there under a a dictator (laughs) named Luke Austin.
0: That's next on American Rehab. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. We're back with the final chapter in the story of Luke Austin, a criminal and wannabe country western singer who founded Senecor. Before the break, we heard about Luke shooting his girlfriend Pauline and landing back in prison, but he wouldn't stay there long. His Reveal's Laura Starcheski.
1: Luke would end up serving only about 14 months at the Colorado prison. In his prison file, there were a couple photographs. First, a mugshot, dated 1966, after he shot Pauline. In this photo, his lips are parted, almost like there's an invisible cigarette hanging out of the side of his mouth. His prison work shirt is baggy and wrinkled. His hair is greased back into a ducktail. He has a receding hairline and big ears. A little placard hangs around his neck that says Colorado State Pen. Luke looks mean, like a lackey for the mob you'd see in an old movie. And then there's this other beautiful old silver gelatin print in the prison file, dated 1967. Luke's not wearing his prison work shirt anymore. He's got a suit and a skinny tie with a little embroidered design on it. Not sure where he got the outfit while he was in prison, But his hair is combed forward. It looks soft. There's no grease in it. His gaze is lifted slightly upward. He's smiling just a bit. And if this was the only photo you ever saw of Luke Austin, you'd think he were a preacher or a missionary. He looks like a man with a higher purpose. So what happened between 1966 and 1967, the times these two photos were taken? Luke founded Senecor. The very first Senecor chapter inside the Colorado State Prison had a core group of 26 men and a waiting list of more than 100. That's according to a Senecor booklet I found from the early days of the organization. The booklet is Luke's Senecor manifesto. It's like a handbook. In it, he used the man with the higher purpose photo to introduce himself to potential followers. The handbook says that when Luke got out of prison in 1968, he and his new wife, Dottie, established the first Senecor house in Lakewood, a Denver suburb. There's a photo of that in the booklet, too, just a cute little house with a front lawn. The first outside Senecor members, just a few people, live in this house with Luke and Dottie. Luke wrote this booklet in 1969, the year of the moon landing. Protesters are raging against the Vietnam War. Student movements for peace and democracy and liberation are shaping the world. It's the year of Woodstock, when free love hippie culture is sweeping the country. Meanwhile, inside the Senecor house, Luke creates an authoritarian system, a total environment, as he called it. Into this total environment walk young people, Teenagers whose parents were panicking about the drug use that was just starting to hit the mainstream. Some grown men who'd already done major prison time for drugs or violent crimes. And then people who actually did have problems with heroin, like Ken Barron.
4: I am executive vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and I uh, started my career at Senecor on June 12, 1972.
1: I met Ken at his office at the Billy Graham Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. The building's all stone and huge timber beams. Ken is an evangelical Christian. He had a born-again experience about 20 years ago. He also maintains his Jewish faith. So on the shelves of his office, there's a menorah, and there are also portraits of Jesus and Billy Graham. Ken grew up in New York City. He started using heroin as a teenager in the mid-60s. He says he had this constant gnawing anxiety in his gut.
4: Drugs gave me a feeling of confidence that I could do anything. But then I found myself physically uh, in need of that feeling of confidence.
1: That launched him into seven years of serious addiction.
4: A day was like a year sometimes. And and it was all chasing heroin. It was chasing heroin, chasing heroin, chasing heroin.
1: Ken says he roamed the country like that, from the East Coast to the West Coast. At one point, he almost walked into a Synanon house in California for help. He got partway up the steps, but he couldn't make himself go inside. He wasn't ready to quit.
4: The fear of pain uh, from withdrawal is absolutely overwhelming, the fear of sickness. It's like somebody getting inside of you and taking control of you. Your, your, your life is run by that. And there are no boundaries, there are no morals, and all because you want to get, and after a while you don't get high, you just get normal, what you call normal.
1: Ken's parents disowned him. His wife left with their baby. Eventually, he ended up in a psychiatric ward in Houston, Texas. At the time, prisons and psych wards were just about the only options for people using heroin, besides Synanon.
4: So they put me in this, this room that had, a, it was, I guess, on the psych ward. Now things became very blurry to me, but it had a, one of those woolen blankets on it, no sheets, bars on the window and uh, and gave me a hospital gown. And I looked out the window at uh, the highway that went by the hospital in Houston. And I remember asking myself, how can these people live normally? As I'm watching the cars and I'm imagining the people in the cars and families and people going to work, I said, I I just can't imagine being able to do that. I've, I've lost touch with how to do that.
1: Ken did detox and got discharged, but he still needed help. He hadn't really dealt with his addiction. He headed to Colorado, and on June 12th, 1972, Ken left the outside world and entered Senecor.
4: I remember what I was even wearing. Uh, this purple pair of bell-bottom jeans. <laughs> Crazy. It was crazy, my hair was long.
1: By this time, Luke Austin had moved Senecor from his own house to an old industrial bakery. Luke and the early members had torn out the huge ovens and set up dorm-like rooms upstairs.
4: I remember saying I would stay there at least, I would stay there three months, that was it. I I would have this figured out. I stayed at Senecor 11 years. 11 years. I stayed there under uh, a dictator <laughs> named Luke Austin. He walked strong, he carried himself, strong personality.
1: Luke and Dottie kept everybody in line with almost exactly the same rules and tools used at Sinanon. No drugs, no alcohol, no acts or threats of physical violence— They play the game three nights a week, circling up in folding chairs, getting into it, yelling and screaming for hours sometimes, just like the participants. In Luke's total environment, anyone who breaks the rules is, quote, rewarded with distasteful and humiliating chastisement, in the words of the handbook. Punishments like getting your head shaved or sitting in a so-called idiot chair with a sign around your neck that says, I'm stupid, please help me. Another rule? Everyone had to work, even in the early years when Ken Barron first got there. Inside the Senecor house, the residents did repairs, cooked, and cleaned. They were required to stay busy. And outside the house, Luke was tinkering with the program, trying to make money and coming up with different Senecor businesses. The participants did landscaping. They built rabbit hutches. They built sawhorses and sold them at Safeway for $4.95, 4 dollars 95 They called the work Industries, and the money went to Senecor.
4: And then we bought a truck, a big 18-wheeler, and gas prices were low then, so we decided to make that an industry. A couple of us learned how to drive. I drove an 18-wheeler cross-country.
1: Ken drove a big loop. He took beef from Colorado to California, then picked up artichokes and cabbage and hauled back to Colorado.
4: And we did that a bunch of times. Went up to... I remember Moses Lake Washington picked up a load of potatoes and brought it back. Beautiful trip. It was absolutely beautiful. But we still maintained this Senecor environment with us. Nobody would go drink. Nobody would cuss. You know, we would would monitor ourselves pretty well.
1: The landscaping business was called Senecor, the Earth, and You. They had a custom van shop, a Senecor-run Chevron gas station. They got food donated, buildings donated, which the participants fixed up themselves. By the early 70s, Luke had expanded the program. He added a facility in Houston, Texas, in an abandoned hospital. He bought an old Masonic temple in Long Beach, California. Luke had a vision. Senecor houses all around the country. This was the start of a movement. Some people say the mastermind behind it all was actually Luke's wife, Dottie, the woman he married right after he got out of prison.
4: I don't know where he met his wife, doris or Dottie austin but she was completely the opposite except for the red hair she had red hair and she was tiny she was a tiny little thing she was probably five foot and soaking wet would have weighed 100 pounds at that uh but she was always sickly always sickly and boy she was mean as could be she was mean
1: Dottie had little poodles with painted toenails, and the participants were made to take them on walks around downtown Houston. Senecor eventually moved into a rundown hotel there, the William Penn Hotel. Luke and Dottie made Ken and the other participants fix up a penthouse suite for them on the top floor. Once they were settled in Texas, Luke and Dottie started to withdraw from the day-to-day life of Senecor. Some participants suspected that Luke had started drinking again, And little by little, Luke's old dream, his original dream, took over.
4: Luke Austin fancied himself a country-western singer. He actually, this is where it started to go wacko, he bought an old country-western club on the south side of Houston, and we went in there and converted it, and we ran a country-western nightclub serving booze.
1: Senecor's total environment was breaking down.
4: We built this huge bar. We hired people. I was running the place uh, not well.
1: Luke named the bar Country Kingdom USA. He bought a bus, that one from the video I found. He started a band, hired a bunch of musicians.
4: This is all with Senecore money. I've got to tell you, it's all Senecore money that we're going out to raise, and he's doing these things. He he recorded a a song, and it, it was... It's actually funny to think about it, but was sad. And we're watching this. Now, my my ex-wife, my my second wife, Maria, was the accountant. She came into the program shortly after I did, but she was 16 years old when she came in.
8: Oh,
1: my gosh. A teenager. Uh,
4: Yeah, she was real young.
1: Maria lives in Las Vegas now. She met Ken inside Senecor. I was just a rebellious
9: teenager. I wasn't a drug addict. I didn't commit crimes, I was just a wild teenager and my mother took me down there to meet the drug addicts to scare me. And I fell in love with the place. And
1: when you were doing bookkeeping at Senecor, you just taught yourself how
9: to do that? I think I did. I'm really good at book smarts, paperwork, that kind of stuff. I pretty much taught myself accounting at age 17 and 18 and took over the bookkeeping and things. And I just started seeing things, and I just started building evidence. Well, what were you seeing in the books? Way too much money going to things that were just for Luke and Dottie Austin. And it didn't benefit the entire program. He had bought Cadillacs. He had um, They didn't need to drive around in cars like that. When people were eating donated bagels, they, they didn't need to do that.
4: And we could see it. We weren't blind. I mean, they could by matching Lincoln Continentals. We're driving 1954 Fords around. And he's wearing a big gold chain. And she was, you know, up in the, this eighth or seventh story penthouse that we built down. And it was really nice. And living, you know, just living off all of us. And we're going, mm, this is not cool. This is not kosher.
9: I ended up going to uh, some of our board members and sitting down with them and saying, you guys, this is going on. What do we do?
1: How did you have the confidence to take that to the board?
9: It was incredibly scary, Laura. Luke had um, been inappropriate with a couple of the girls in the program, and I don't know to what extent, but... I had seen it. I had heard about it. It was kind of, mm, no one talked about it, and it was something that I was very aware of. So that kind of went into my um, list of things I approached the board with as well. Once Maria
1: went to the board, word eventually made its way to a Texas state senator.
6: My my name is Gene Jones. Uh, Back in the 70s, I was a member of the, Texas Legislature first the House and and then the Senate.
1: When Jones heard about where the Senecor money was going, he decided to start an investigation into Senecor and Luke and Dottie Austin.
6: To this day, I, I remember, I remember Luke Austin uh, 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 with some uh, laughter every time I I think about him. He, he was he was on the verge of just being a clown, you know. Uh, a dictatorial clown.
1: Strangely, Luke cooperated with the whole investigation, which would find that Luke and Dottie spent more than $400,000 on the country music effort alone, not to mention tens of thousands more on a plane, a yacht, and a bunch of fancy cars.
6: In addition to that, he had a limousine. He had a limousine that he was driven around... uh, by one of the people who who were there being rehabbed. He told me that uh, when I was talking to him that he had set himself up as a figure that that here here I am, I've been uh, a dope addict, Uh, I've been in the penitentiary, and here I am living a life of luxury. This is where you can be. He said that he had to give him a living example he sounded as if he had at least convinced himself that that's what he ought to be doing, uh, and, and he was he was he was living like a king.
1: Senator Jones published a report on his investigation in the winter of 1976. Luke was unofficially exiled to Arizona by the board, supposedly to think up some new ideas for Senecor. Instead, he cheated on Dottie with a new girlfriend, and for some reason, Ken says, that was the last straw.
4: We get on a plane, and it was pre-TSA and pre-anything. They never checked you for anything. Just walk on the plane and sit down, and, and we flew out to Arizona, rented a car, drove to his house. I knocked on the door. He comes to the door. Oh, hey, Ken, what are you doing here? Come on in. I said, no, Luke, I'm, I'm not coming in. That is a big guy. And he says, what's going on? Why are you here? I said, well, I'm here to tell you you're fired. And he starts laughing. I said, no, seriously, you're fired. You have abused us and used this money, and you're out here living in, I didn't say in sin with some other woman, but you left band and your wife. And he said, she's behind us. I said, no, I'm telling you, she's she's fired too. So... We then jump in the car and drive back to the airport to catch our plane, and we're sitting in the back of the plane, and we see him get on with his girlfriend in first class. Now, we hadn't told everybody back in Houston or in Denver what was going on. He's on the plane, and we're going, oh, my gosh. He's going to get there before we do. And then we're out, and he's in. So he comes to the back of the plane, points his finger at Maria— points his finger and says, I'm going to kill you, because he knew that she exposed him for all the money. So we're all, you know, like shaking in our boots, and I mean, this is a whole new world for us.
1: But somebody on the plane heard the threat and got word to air traffic
4: control. And so the plane makes an unexpected stop in San Antonio, and on come the federal marshals and take him and his girlfriend off the plane.
1: Luke disappeared for a while after that. Ken was managing the Houston facility. And about six months later, in the summer of 1978, Ken was at his Senecor office in the William Penn Hotel when he heard a ruckus downstairs. It was Luke and a small crew of Senecor splittees. That's what they call people who leave the program. They busted into the hotel wearing black armbands. They had mace, tear gas, and baseball bats.
4: And I run down the stairs, and Luke Austin points his finger and says, that's the guy, get him. So somebody just cold-cocked me, and I went down.
9: They came in to the old hotel building and started macing everybody and telling everyone they had to get into the dining room for general meeting. And Dottie Austin sat there and, on the main switchboard, punched all the buttons so you couldn't dial out. And I ran out into the middle of Texas Avenue and flagged a police car down.
1: Meanwhile, at the Colorado Senecor facility, at the exact same moment, Luke Austin's mother led another crew in a coordinated takeover. This group wore creepy Halloween masks and brandished guns, some fake, some real, none loaded. In Houston, it took only a few minutes for the Senecor participants to corner Luke and his crew.
4: We had a bunch of two-by-fours in the lobby that we were doing some remodeling with, and they had them all rounded up. And by that time, the SWAT teams are there, and the police, (laughs) they come in and arrest them all. And uh, that's the last time I ever saw him. Luke had
1: also filed a lawsuit to try to take back control, but it didn't work. Most of the money was gone. Senecor was so broke, its followers barely had enough to eat.
9: Green jello with rice in it. I remember someone got creative one time and made green jello with white rice in it. It was so disgusting. But somehow,
1: with Luke gone, the lessons of Senecor became even stronger for the participants left behind. The rules he had put in place were more powerful
9: than he was. We felt like the program was ours, but we did feel um, disappointed and angry that he had forgotten where he came from and who he was. Luke Austin wasn't ever charged
1: for siphoning off Senecor's money. He served about a week in jail after the attempted takeover in Houston. And he would never work with Senecor again. After stints living in apartments, an RV park, and eventually a string of nursing homes, Luke died in western Colorado in 2000. The local paper didn't even publish an obituary.
0: The ordeal almost killed Senecor. But the heyday of 1980s capitalism was just around the corner, and a savior was on the way.
5: I was glancing through your Senecor booklet, and I liked the very first sentence I read. In all the years that Senecor has been in business... Rehabilitating lives, we have found that nothing works as well as work itself.
0: Next time on American Rehab, Reaganomics, the war on drugs, and NFL football pads to the rescue.
7: Dan Pastorini bullseyed 26 times for 354 yards on the afternoon. See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine, the most addictive form.
5: The vast majority of folks that I deal with are basically bottom feeders. They're basically looking for the perfect welfare state where the do-gooders take care of them.
0: The American Rehab reporting team is Shoshana Walter, Laura Starcheski, and Ike Kandaraja. Brett Myers is our editor. Kevin Sullivan edited this chapter. Laura is our lead producer, and she produced this chapter. Amy Julia Harris helped us report the story from the beginning and launched the project. We had additional editorial support from Narda Zucchino, Andy Donahue, and Esther Kaplan, and production help from WHYY in Philadelphia. Special thanks to Sarah D'Elia, Corey Jones, Volker Jensen, Muj Zaidi, Charlie Kyer, Al Banks, Diana Martinez, and Caddy Donnelly, who was our voice of Luke Austin's Prison Letters. Fact Checking by Rosemarie Ho, Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel, and our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our production team includes Najee Bamini, Catherine Miskowski, and Amy Mustafa. Our theme song is Lifeline by Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando my man, Yo Aruda. They composed and performed all the music on American Rehab. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg, Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Support for Reveal is provided by the Reeve and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, And remember, there is always more to the story.